0: Welcome to citiesabc.com, series of interviews and profiles with global top thought leaders, experts and people shaping and creating new narratives for our world, society, business and industries. My name is Dinesh Guarda and this is my podcast and as well a platform where we are hosting and welcoming big minds and big spirits, and authors that are talking about the biggest problems, questions and challenges humanity is facing and how we can think bigger and out of the box to find the best solutions and the best ideas to solve these problems citiesabc.com is a new wiki for AR, intelligent smart cities tech digital platform for reinventing and uniting cities universities and all of us citizens today we have with us randon bolton that is an author and finance executive Randall Bolton has over 30 years experience in high tech companies in Silicon Valley, and including 20 years as CFO for both public companies and venture-backed private companies, including IPO and several other public transactions. Randall Bolton recently authored the new book, Painting with Numbers, presenting financials and other numbers so people will understand you. I think this is a particularly important topic for our times. Welcome to our podcast, Randall. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Dennis, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's an honor to be included in, in your list of interviewees.
0: Thank you so much. So, Randall, I'm particularly interesting, uh, interested in your experience and trajectory, and I think we need more and more wisdom, and uh, as well people that have uh, experience in building things, not in destroying, because it's very easy to destroy, but it is difficult to construct and as well especially at these times we need more than ever to construct and, and build new narratives and new stories. So I would like to start with uh, your history. I know that you are uh, an American from different areas, from Washington, so could you tell us a bit about your background, a bit of introduction, education, overview?
1: Sure, I'd be happy
0: to do that. I'm first of
1: all uh, unusual even in the United States. I'm a native of Washington, D.C. I grew up inside the city line. Uh, Other than a a few years uh, in my early childhood in in Germany, where my father was in the Central Intelligence Agency and and stationed in in Germany in the 1950s, uh, I spent my entire youth in in Washington, D.C., uh, I, I went to Princeton University as an undergraduate, uh, studied economics um, w- with some additional emphasis on applied mathematics uh, back in the days when that meant learning how to write programs in, in Fortran. And then went out west to Stanford Business School. Uh, a couple of, for a couple of years after graduation, I worked as a consultant and then concluded I just wanted to be near where things were actually happening instead of writing studies about what might be happening. And I joined a company called Tandem Computers, which was one of the early hot stories. In fact, it was the Tandem Computers was the first successful investment uh, that a venture company called Ten, um, Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers uh, that it was Kleiner Perkins's first investment success uh, in the 70s and 80s. And I had a series of jobs. I uh, started in the treasury, which is a good place for people who don't have necessarily much accounting experience uh, to go into the treasury, especially on the West Coast, the, One of the principal skills is being able to get up early enough to do the investing because uh, the markets open at 6 o'clock on the West Coast, well, 6.30. But I worked at Tandem Computers for seven years. And then for the next three years, in the late 80s, I was uh, the corporate controller at Oracle uh, right after it had gone public and grew from in those th- three years, from 50 to $500 million. And, and that was a remarkable experience. I, I think anybody who worked for Larry Ellison will say uh, that their experience was a remarkable experience. I, I found it very interesting and, and very enjoyable. Uh, but, but the main takeaway for me from having worked at Oracle was that uh, Oracle, uh, at Oracle, I was the alpha user of Oracle Financials, which was the first uh, financial accounting system based on a relational database. And and that was a profound change in the way the financial information was was recorded. Uh, And among other things, it was a profound change in the way you could get information out of an accounting system. Uh, after my time at Oracle, um, and, and since then, I've I've been I've been a CFO for now nearly thirty years, uh, and at a variety of companies. Uh, one of them you, you you mentioned the growth was Broadvision. I joined Broadvision uh, when it was. 24 employees and and no revenues and was there for six years uh, until the time it had about i think about 3600 employees and uh, over 500 million dollars in in annual revenue we took that company public uh, and and had several stock offerings after that since then I've been the CFO of several other software companies. And as um, Dennis, says, as you mentioned earlier, a few years ago, one of the passions, and perhaps you can infer that from my description of of my experience at, at, at Oracle, one of my passions is not just looking at the numbers, but presenting the numbers in a way that people actually can, can understand them. And I view it fundamentally as a communication skill. And that's what motivated me to write painting with numbers. Uh, and so over the last six or eight years, I've been a CFO, mostly on a contract basis. Uh, I'm, I'm involved in an interesting startup I'll talk about in just a second. But um, I've been involved as a CFO, as I said, mostly on a contract basis, and and also involved in specific CFO-type projects. Uh, Another interest of mine is designing incentive compensation plans that actually make sense, uh, that don't create uh, fratricidal incentives within a company, uh, and, and so on. But also, uh, as a result of having published the book, I've done a fair amount of writing and speaking uh, and teaching. As as you mentioned, I teach a class uh, at Berkeley called Presenting Quantitative Data Effectively. Uh, I've also uh, taught a course like that for a few years uh, at the University of of Coburg in in the MBA program in Germany. that brings us up to the present. I'm, I'm currently involved in a startup. It's uh, very, very early. Um, in another medical issue that's gotten a lot of, in, involved in another medical issue that's gotten a lot of press lately, a little bit less during the, um, during the pandemic, but it's the opioid crisis. And it's a software company uh, whose goal is to make life easier and more efficient for doctors who prescribe controlled substances. And if, if you like, we can, we can spend a little bit of time talking about that uh, in, in the course of this conversation. Uh, again, one of the things it relates to is how do do, it is producing information uh, for people who have to make a living making intelligent decisions about the information they're getting.
0: Fantastic. So, so Randall, it's, it's really an impressive CV and as well, for instance, just the experience of uh, Oracle would be probably the, the, the context for a great interview. So, I would like to go through, through this experience working with some of the leading tech companies in the world um, and as well, looking at the difference and as well, for instance, 30 years, a lot of things change in terms of the way you look at technology, the look at maths and finance and as well, even uh, databases because I'm sure that 30 years ago looking at the way you you, you just report the numbers is completely different from what we have now So in this let's start by this because I think this is particularly important um, To see the the way you see the evolution and as well still involving startups, which is great. I'll see the evolution first of all of the financial um, the financial kind of uh, numbering part of the, the businesses which you've been working But as well, the the evolution to use much more software and much more uh, different things. So do you think we change, we evolve a lot? And as well, there was a democratization of the concept of startup, the concept of tech company, and tech became actually mainstream. But I would like to hear your opinion on that area.
1: Well, as as the lawyers would say, that's a compound question. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is. But, but that's OK. It gives me an opportunity to, uh, to, to talk about how information has, has changed in the last 30 years. Like I said, uh, oracles in, introduced a revolution that's not really that well understood. But 30 or 40 years ago, or more, Uh, it was incredibly difficult to produce the numbers. And it took armies of people with calculators um, to produce financials. And and it took so much time and effort to produce that 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 it was really hard for anybody to take additional time to do any analysis on the numbers. I know you've interviewed people who, um, who are uh, professors of business analytics and that sort of thing. Uh, and those capabilities weren't possible. The, the mathematics was there 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, the, st- the statistical knowledge was there. But there just wasn't the bandwidth in, in a finance organization to make sense of the numbers. And one of the things you'll see, and this is an ongoing trend, and it's and it's going to continue, is that the the, the distribution of people in the finance function is shifting from accounting uh, and from treasury into what's what's called FPNA, financial planning and analysis, uh, and the this is a decentralized focus the fpna people don't necessarily report in a decentralized way often they're part of the cFO organization just as they've always been but physically uh, and emotionally they support line functions like uh, like sales and manufacturing uh, and and marketing and and they are often becoming one of the right-hand support people for a line manager because there's so much data and it's so easy to download the data and and collect it that managers can behave in a data-driven way but at the same time there are issues with that Uh, one of them and i uh, one of the interviews I, I watched before we before we um, got on this call this morning was with the business analytics um, chairman at, at I think it's the University of Glasgow I, I believe or a, a, a Scottish professor.
0: Edinburgh, Edinburgh, yeah.
1: And, and it's it, it's it's remarkable that some of the logic that you have to use hasn't changed. Uh, We'll we'll talk about this in in the questions you asked me to consider, the future of education. I'm I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But I'm a little bit of a traditionalist. And and there are two things that I think even finance professionals who are awash in data, who have lots of powerful software uh, to uh, collect data, to analyze it, to present information. There are two sets of skills uh, that are critically important for doing this. And I would say even more important now that we have so much data. And one of them is statistics. It's just a basic understanding of how you make inferences from numbers, thinking statistically. And another reason that's important now is because we live in riskier times. And and when you live in riskier times, you need to focus not only on what's happening and what you think is going to happen, but what's the variation around that. What what is the range of the upside uh, and the downside? So that's one of the areas I mentioned is statistics and statistical inference is becoming more and more important when we have so much data. The second thing is fundamental communication skills. Uh, and this, is a, this has been an ongoing trend as more and more functions are online, as more and more people who do financial support are, are out near the line organizations. But it's even truer now When uh, we're all isolated and and everybody's working, well, not everybody, but everybody who physically can is working from their home. There is that there's simply as far as making yourself understood, there's simply no substitute for being in the same room with people you're talking to. And one of the things I think is a little bit tragic. Well, there's a lot that's tragic about, about the pandemic. But one of the things that people don't always talk about is the fact that people are not communicating in the same physical location nearly as much. And, and, and I don't think you can understate, I don't think you can overstate the significance of, of that issue. And that change, but when you're in the same room with a person and that person doesn't understand what you're saying, he can sort of look at you and form an inference about whether you're serious or not, whether you think what this, what you're, whether you're advocating an action or or arguing against uh, an action, and. And if you don't understand, you can say, could you clarify that? And these are things that are much harder to do when you're all on a Zoom conference. And there's no opportunity after the Zoom conference is over, as you're walking out of the room, to say, by the way, you know, in, the, in that meeting, when you said thus and so. Uh, so, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of a traditionalist when it comes to education and and i think the future belongs to people even more than 20 or 30 years ago the future belongs to people who can make themselves understood and can communicate things in a way that doesn't necessarily turn people off makes them seem and and doesn't make and makes them seem informed and understanding, but not necessarily arrogant and talking down to people. Uh, the Silicon Valley was full of people who didn't have much in the way of personality, but were completely brilliant at writing great code or coming up with great marketing ideas. Uh, and, and it's going to be harder When you're distant from people, to to sell yourself and and to make your points well understood.
0: That's very good points there, but. uh, No, I understand. So I would like to touch precisely what you said. I I believe I I believe in. I agree with you that uh, we need the traditionalism side because there are things that never change, and and some mm-hmm. of the things is relationships and business uh, network, and as well like you said, the basis need to be the basis. You're not. I think uh, there was someone. Uh, even if you look at uh, Nasir Talib, um, uh, and the and the numbers and. And the importance that I think, when it comes to numbers, numbers are numbers, <laughs> and that's a big challenge in the business, especially in the in the geopolitical world we're living in today. So, from an education perspective, from a you've been well you've been part of some of the leading universities in the world, studying in Princeton and as well teaching in Berkeley. So, how do you see the education, and what would be like the major? Um, I think. Uh, the major summary that you got from your experience and as well career, especially now that that uh, I think we are in a phase, and hopefully this won't continue. The social distance won't continue forever, because we need to be close to people. But what would be like the, the major summary points and major conclusions that you got from your experience in education, in finance, and in business?
1: You know, I, it it won't come as a surprise to you that that the part of my education. That I value the most, strictly about the education, is, 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 is the places where I learned to, to write effectively, and to speak effectively, and to form reasonable and logical conclusions um, from the numbers. And I, I that's going to continue to be true, uh, that well, let me make sort of a political statement. I, I don't know what it's, it, this is not such an issue outside the U.S., but in the U.S., uh, perhaps you've read that there are an immense number of young adults who are, who are horribly burdened by the debt they've incurred by, for going to college. And, they, and they're not making enough money to pay off that debt, uh, and, 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 and there's a lot of discussion about what to do about that, including people on the, uh, on, on the left wing who are who are saying there should be college debt forgiveness, we have to forgive all this college debt. The, 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 the problem is that people haven't necessarily asked themselves, why is it that these these poor young people can't pay off the debt and and part of the problem is because what they learned in college didn't earn them enough more money compared to not going to college uh, to um to to enable them to to pay off that debt and that speaks to what academics needs to do for people to make them successful in their careers. And and I think where we're headed here, especially because technology changes so much, the rules change so much, that um, one of the things I think we have to do is focus traditional education on the basics and spend perhaps less time uh, requiring people to go to to college and spending more time getting short ad hoc training in the skills they need to learn right now uh, as things move forward. And even in, in finance, which you would think was kind of an intellectually stable functional area, leaving aside the focus on more and more data. Um, But the accounting rules are are changing so fast that, you know, 40 years ago, you could be an accounting major in college, and maybe even go get a master's in accounting, and you would know enough accounting uh, to be successful in your career as a CPA. And that's not true anymore, because the rules keep changing, and because the rules are different, uh, and because, Reporting requirements of software companies are different from medical device companies, are different from fast food chains. And so, really, what you need is the basics. And then, as you're out there and you go to work for an accounting firm and you start auditing, say, a f- food companies or software companies you need specialized training on a, on a more ad hoc basis to help you do that. And I think that's true in, in all kinds of technical areas. Uh, you know, they, they said, I, I, somebody once said to me that um, uh, in the 1600s, Sir Isaac Newton knew everything that mankind knew. Every, every piece of information that mankind had could be known by a single person like Galileo or Sir, Sir Isaac Newton. And we've gotten way away from that. It's just not possible anymore. And you, you have to be able to say, I don't know.
0: Yeah, and that is a very important thing, I, I think, from a leadership and from... A um, from an education perspective, the capacity of humility and the capacity to learn, but as well to listen. And I think that's very important. And that's why I, I love to hear people like you with your experience, but as well with the dignity that comes with that. So from your experience with Berkeley um, and as well in the academic world, what would be the, let's say you've been teaching um, a lot of people and, and passing through a lot of things. And then do you have as well the experience as CFO and working with big corporations and as well with startups so how do you see this trajectory? Because for instance, one of the things that, uh, probably this is a, another complex question, but I would like to hear is that one of the things I've been finding is that I i used to be a huge um, fan of Silicon Valley, but now and uh, being here in the, in London, UK, but as well, I feel that Silicon Valley partly failures. Uh, it's not the worst. There's a lot of great things that came out of that, but it became probably... Uh, Kind of a self-centered organization that doesn't really creates anymore and is losing part of control of the rest of the world. If you look at what is happening in Asia, in Africa, there's much more innovation coming out of there right now, and as well, um, there's a lot of challenge on that level. So, so there's a kind of a reaffirmation and re-engineering of the world innovation decentralized systems right now, but as well, the the way we look at education as well. So. From being in, in a leading university and teaching as well, finance, how do you see these as well? And what's your opinion on all of these topics?
1: You know, I, I think what you're describing is, is accurate, that there are plenty of Silicon Valleys in the world. I, I think Silicon Valley, the, the people who were in Silicon Valley 30 or 40 years ago, uh, or who came to Silicon Valley 30 or 40 years ago, should pat themselves on the back for, for having created a new approach to business. Um, and, and it's an approach that's taking hold in London, in Boston, um, in, in, in the Far East. Uh, and mostly, uh, that's a good thing. And, and, and the idea um, that it was going to go on forever and be centralized. Uh, in, in Silicon Valley was an unachievable dream. Uh, but like I said, uh, I, I think that's a good thing. Um, we're, we're seeing, you know, I'm a, I'm involved in a small company here in Washington right now. It's it's called Scriptulate. You, you won't have heard of it, but um, it's a couple of guys. Uh, and one of them is 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 an md who's a, who's a who's a pain specialist and he's become increasingly frustrated the us has one of the worst opioid crises in the world but uh, opioids are, are 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 a problem uh, worldwide uh, and controlled substances are are a further problem. Uh, it, it's not just opioids, but the but the next uh, prescription drug problem that the world is going to face uh, is uh, Adderall, um, and 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 the one that there are some epidemiologists who worry about the most is is the worldwide overprescription of antibiotics, um, which is going to create strains of diseases that are resistant to okay, antibiotics. So any kind of software that makes it easier for doctors to more safely and efficiently prescribe controlled substances it is, it is immensely valuable. And, and I know I've, I've sort of gone afield um, with this one, but I want to come back to the point that this company could be founded by two people. One guy who's, 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 a, who's a doctor who specializes in pain medication and has seen how hard it is to prescribe controlled substances. And the other one is uh, uh, a very experienced uh, IT consulting professional. As it happens, both of them grew, were, were born in India but have lived in the US. But the point is But the point I want to come back to is that this business can be created anywhere. uh, And doesn't have to be in Silicon Valley. Uh, It may be that we'll go to Silicon Valley when the time comes to to raise funding uh, for this business. But with technology, especially powerful software technology, Regardless of what the software is used for, uh, it's a business that can be started anywhere. That's one of the best things that's happened in the world in the last 30 or 40 years. And a lot of it is because of technology that's pretty invisible to us, uh, a little bit like Zoom,
0: for example. No, completely. So, so I wanna, I wanna keeping on that level, and I think uh, so. Coming, coming right now from your experience at CFO again. So, one of the things you touched when you mentioned about Oracle and some the other companies that you took over, and as well that you initially started looking at the numbers, and as well the role of CFO. So, the role of CFO is probably after the CEO the most important role in any company. And as well, even, uh, I would say, (laughs) no, I think it's a fact. In some cases, the CFO is as important as the CEO and the CTO, CTO. but of course, right now, we need to have technology. But from that experience, uh, uh, leading um, big companies, like you, public companies and private companies, what would be your biggest advice for companies listening to us and for potential people that want to go into the industry? or as well, even present CEOs and CTOs and CFOs that are listening to us. Because I think experience is very important and the devil's of details. And I think um, for, let's say, for each very successful company, there's probably hundreds of companies that are failing.
1: I would say so, yeah.
0: We only see normally the success in one thing that happened. Yeah, so, so I think that I'm particularly interested in that experience. And as well, you're still active when you could probably be relaxing, which I admire as well. So just giving a bit of an overview on that area and that are kind of the, the things that you, that the traditionalism part in a good way that you consider the most important areas for, for that.
1: Well, to some extent, I, again, I'll come. I'll, I'll come back to my traditionalist view, which is that it, it, it's kind of a it, it's a um, it's kind of a shame that the word that the term CEO was taken already to mean chief executive officer, because I, I'll interpret your question as asking me what's important for CFOs, and 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 I. I like to think of the uh, CFO as the chief explaining officer. That, that one reason you, you you made that flattering, but I think honest comment about CFOs in, in many companies being the most important person uh, in the company after the, the CEO is because Rather than thinking about the CFO job as being about managing money and cash and and that sort of thing, and all of those, and those things are important. But as you sometimes, as we sometimes say, we have people for that sort of thing. Uh, The the CFO's principal job is just making sense of the business to everybody. Uh, One of the things that I that I really enjoy doing, and I think uh, it's a useful skill that I bring to this company where I'm working right now called Scriptulate, is simply a a sense of why the enterprise is there and how you explain it to people. So for example, uh, a, a good CFO, is the person who really is responsible for helping construct the investment pitch uh, that the company has. Um, especially when you have a founder who may be technically very astute, but is very wrapped up in, in how wonderful the technology is and not necessarily in what problem the, uh, that technology is solving, even though he, and, he or, or she intuitively understands there's a problem to be solved um, but a, but a good CFO can also help in helping salespeople craft a value proposition for for customers uh, and in and um, in, in the case for example of ScriptJoy, in getting involved in what the user interface looks like, for an MD who's using the software uh, in a way that helps him quickly understand whether prescribing a certain drug is going to be risky for this particular, for this particular patient. In other words, there's kind of a blurring of the lines between functions. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons that's happened is because of all this access to data and the need to make sense of the data. So if there was one thing that I would say, if you're asking me uh, for career advice, for somebody who's in, in in the finance profession, is in addition to developing a strong understanding of the underlying business, think in terms of how this how that understanding gets presented to lots of different people, to people inside the company who are technically skilled, to potential customers who are thinking about buying the product, to investors who are trying to understand what the future potential of the company is. But in every one of those situations, it's an explaining challenge.
0: Very interesting. um speaking right now in terms of uh we've been going through the, your experience as CFO and the different areas. So we've been looking at some of the things that are particularly interesting we've been right now with lucidity that is your contract cfo company and this is a, I want to touch a bit to this the, the cfo as a contractor and this is an area that is becoming very important for startups and and i don't know are we working mm-hmm. with this new startup over there in, in washington but it's a very interesting thing for the future is that we we are tending to see the future of work less as a continuation of a linear work but working with different collaboration and people that come and work. And as well, you have a huge experience in consultancy. So how do you see this, this angle between the consultancy, between being part of a company and creating in a company and being in and out? Because that's a very important thing. And I think it's it's something not everyone can actually work in, in. And I think the COVID-19 is highlighting this need of having much more collaboration digitally. And you touch that from Zoom to other things, but as well, it, it's very complex and very difficult. So being someone that has been working as a contractor, as consultant, but as well as CFO, you've been having the two roles, being within a company, outside of a company, coming in and out, and as well reflecting that as a teacher. So how do you see this part? It's particularly interesting, I think, for everyone in business in the world.
1: Well, and, and you're going to see more and more of it. It's, you know, one of the things... I'll make sort of a, a, a social comment before I answer your question more directly, is that the laws in some countries um, make it difficult to be a, a contractor compared to an employee. Um, you know, for example, in the U.S., when it comes to being able to... Um, carry your health insurance from one place of work to another for example that one of the things that countries need to recognize is an increasing focus on what you know what sometimes is called the gig economy Uh, but but at the same time there's no question that this this trend toward contract people especially in fairly skilled jobs Um, and jobs that don't necessarily require constant physical presence, like being a CFO, Um, that that, uh, there's no question that you're going to see more and more of that. And in some ways, that's a good thing, because here I am, uh, this startup I just described scripturally, it's two guys who have been able to convince some of their friends to to develop software uh, at, at somewhat lower rates for a few months until the company gets funded, and, and they need somebody with my skills or with the skills of someone like me to help them develop an approach to pricing and to create a business model and to create an investor pitch uh, and to have somebody who's got, well, I was going to say have some gray hairs, but white hairs will do uh, as as well. But to have somebody who, in a senior way, uh, presents the company credibly, but they don't really need that much, at least in, in the very very early stages. So you're going to see more and more of this, uh, and and especially you know to come back to a a, a topic we touched on earlier in this conversation that the particular skills that you need at any given time are very specialized and you may not need it you, you may only need one person for three months with this particular knowledge of um, inter for example let's say with scriptulate interfacing scriptulate software with the emr systems the the, these big-ticket um, health information systems that, that cost hospitals billions of dollars to implement. And for a while, you need somebody who knows how to, to interface the software you're developing with this EMR system. And then you don't need that person again for many more months. And you're going to see more and more of that.
0: That is a big challenge as well, though, because one of the things as a teacher, so I I think we are prepared for that because we have quite a big education and and stuff. But for a young, for someone young, uh, like you said, there's a huge depth and there's a huge as well challenge in the sense of stability, both psychological and work stability. So this creates the gig economy that we're not preparing people for this in universities, at least most of the universities have been there. How do you deal with that? I would like to have your opinion, especially teaching at Berkeley. Cause it's, it's, I completely agree with you with everything, but I'm just trying to, to look at both as a teacher as well as CFO. How do you see this angle?
1: This is a challenge. I would say that, um, at least from, from what I've seen, I have, you know, I have, I have two daughters who are 28 and 32, and, and they're, in, in, in their own way, part of this gig economy. I, I would say that they're adjusting to that. that and, and in fact, they're handling it better uh, than, than I or, 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 or my peers uh, would be handling it. I think one of the things that, that has to happen it's that public policy uh, needs to recognize um, that, the, that this is the direction in the future. So for example, and again, you know, this is an issue that's a big issue in the US and I think much less of an issue in, in most of the other um, wealthy countries in, in the world. But um, the, you know, for example, this issue of how do you get health insurance and then how do you keep it? Uh, especially with the cost of healthcare uh, going up and, and 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 up and up. Um, uh, but, but there are our policy, there there are policies that, um, that, that governments. In the US, it's it's important both at the federal and at the state level. There are policy changes uh, that need to be designed to address this approach, this greater approach toward temporary employment and toward contractors uh, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and another one is um, making it easier uh, and and doing making it easier for young people to create savings plans that that enable them to have a cushion 20 or 30 or 40 years out in in the future, Uh, and promoting that kind of approach. So I think people figure this kind of thing out uh, on their own, and what we need is public policies that support um, that approach. I, I think, you know, my sense is that, that young professionals are doing a pretty good job of adjusting to to this economy. It's it's us older people that aren't doing such a good job.
0: Yeah, very. Yeah, it's a good point. So, so I think in, in terms of now coming back to your coming to your book, um, so painting with numbers, presenting financials and other numbers, so people will understand it. I think this is a very good title and very important, I think especially for our politicians, (laughs) for our leaders, because it seems like they don't know much about numbers, but I like not going to politics, but just in terms of the book in itself. Can you tell us about the book, about why you wrote this book and as well, this title that is very clear about what it means?
1: Well, you know, throughout my career, I saw lots and lots of situations where, where, the, where the problem simply was wh- where little changes in the way numerical information could be presented would make a huge difference in how well that information was understood. Uh, and, and one of the things that I've always found most flattering is somebody saying, you know, I've been getting these reports for years, And now I understand them. And all I did was make a few changes to the way the report was laid out, um, presented fewer digits, changed the formatting a little, rearranged a column, little things that that made the information actually accessible to somebody who who wasn't necessarily a finance professional. and as far as I'm concerned, presenting numerical information effectively is not a math skill, it's a communication skill. And people forget that. Uh, so painting with numbers starts with why we write justify a column of numbers in a spreadsheet. There's a good reason for doing that and not right justifying your numbers is a deadly sin of of presenting those numbers. And we move on from there uh, into, uh, for example, using white space effectively when you present a report. Um, The way numbers are visually organized on a sheet of paper is the numbers presentation equivalent of paragraphs in writing. Just imagine if you get a five page memo that was one single paragraph, what would, what would your reaction be if you got a memo like that that was just one paragraph, you know, had no paragraph breaks? Um, you'd, you'd look at that and say, I'm not going to understand this document. Paragraphs calm the reader down. Uh, white space organizes information um, so that you can separate the, out the revenues from the expenses, for example. And it goes on from there to think about things like we talked about this at the very beginning of the conversation. There are a lot of numbers that have been thrown around um, about, you know, we're about to have, I think today actually, it's tragic since it's Memorial Day that we're doing this interview. Uh, the US is going to cross the 100,000 death threshold from um, COVID. Um, uh, and our president brags about how we have performed 14 million tests and that's more than any other country and part of the reason we've done that is because we have more people than any other country except for two China and, and, and India so to perform 14 million tests is not as impre- is not particularly impressive when a country, you know, one-fifth your size has performed 10 million tests. Um, So another important aspect of presenting numbers effectively is using ratios uh, effectively. And and I know this sounds way down in the weeds, but key indicators, KPIs, are a critical element of um, presenting quantitative information uh, effectively um and and another area where this distinction is really important is one of the huge buzzwords in numbers presentation today is is and i'm sure you've used this term and heard it lots is data visualization and that means graphing numbers and the problem with that is not Not every issue lends itself to a a graphical presentation of the numbers. Uh, And data visualization is something that happens even at a table of numbers, uh, when people are using boldface to emphasize the most important numbers, when they're using white space, when they're using colors. So uh, all of these things may seem mundane, but they're especially important to come back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation. They're especially important when when you and the people that you provide a service to are just awash in data, that it becomes even more important to find a way to make sure that that information is comprehensible and that there is actually a message involved in what you're saying. So that painting with numbers is, a, is, is about uh, and, and sadly, um, many people who present information and I kind of hold the accounting profession responsible for this flaw mm-hmm. is that they tend to assume that if the numbers are correct, they've done their job. And that's just not true.
0: So, so you, you tell one when it's understood. And I think it's a very important point and me as well. And I think everyone is increasing, increasing more dependent of, uh, of numbers. So on the data visualization that you touch, and um, how do you see this painting with numbers and as well, for instance, like you said, uh, the way you present the numbers can make a company get funding, can make a company go bankrupt, or can make a company just make a leapfrog in terms of sales or business development, like you mentioned as well. So, how do you look what is this part in terms of uh, uh, on a pragmatic level, from your experience as a CFO, how these numbers uh, can be approached in a very practical way? Is there as the formula is something that you want to highlight with the book, but as well some metrics that you think are really important?
1: I wouldn't necessarily say there there is any single metric that's, that's critically important. The important thing when you're presenting metrics is to show that you've actually you've thought about the problem and you've been able to boil down that issue into a, a relatively um, small set uh, of, of, of numbers. I, let me use um, an investor pitch uh, as an example. One of the slides in every investor pitch is the business model. You know, it's the five-year outlook of of, uh, revenues and expenses and profitability. And frankly, anybody can produce a spreadsheet that that shows that in five years, your startup will be a $300 million company with 80% profit margins. That's just the spreadsheet exercise. Um, what's important if, if, when you're presenting that business model to somebody, and the people in your audience know that that's just a spreadsheet exercise. What is important is if you present that information in a way that shows that you have an understanding of how that business makes money, of why people buy the product, and what it costs to deliver that product. So it's not the raw numbers themselves necessarily, it's the thought behind the raw numbers. So for example, if in your business model you show, say Aid shows that we're going to sign up 5,000 doctors this year and 20,000 doctors next year. And we can show people that 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 is a relatively small percentage of the doctors who prescribe controlled substances uh, and provide a little bit of thought on how we are going to get to those doctors and give the people in the audience a sense of what this software is worth to one doctor is it worth $1000 a year to pay for this software or $2000 a year if you can do that then you've actually used the business model to help people in your audience understand why
0: you might why you're going to succeed Very interesting, and, and so one of the things you did recently, a research note about COVID-19 testing update, um, uh, COVID-19 testing research, can you tell us about that, and I think that's particularly interesting to look at the numbers of COVID-19 in particular as well, we touched that a bit, but understanding from your research, and as well how to put the numbers in perspective, because for instance, if we pick some of your research, and actually I think governments should be looking at it, probably we could get better results and, and, and probably tackle the problem faster. That's, a, as well, one of the things about dealing with the numbers properly.
1: Well, sure, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. It, it, it's become a, a little bit of a passion of mine in, in, in the last few weeks. I, I, I suspect I'm, I'm not the only one. But we talked about testing a little bit earlier. There's no question that the testing is critically important. And, and I'm not an epidemiologist, but I completely understand the point. That the more testing you do, the more people you know who have the disease you can identify and quarantine them and, and get the word for them before they go out and infect other people. So there's no question that, that testing is important. But one of the questions that's worth asking is, and, and this was what the article that you're referring to, the research note that, that I wrote, and thank you for publishing it, um, is that um, I was kind of curious about which countries seem to be doing a good job of, um, of, of doing testing. And for that purpose, the issue is not how many tests you're doing. The, you know a, a country of 300 million, 330 million people like the US should be doing several times more tests than, say, the UK is doing, or Italy, or, 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 or Spain. We have seven times the population of Spain. Uh, but the second thing, and, and this starts to be where you make sense of of the data, is that part of the problem is that having cases drives tests. Because every time you have somebody who who gets sick, you gave him a test to identify that he's sick, Uh, and then you do two or three more tests to determine whether he's been cured, In the the U.S., you're you're not allowed out of quarantine. You're not supposed to be out of quarantine until you test negative two times in a row. And probably it creates a demand to test the people really close to you, like your close family members. So some of the tests you're doing not because you're testing strategically, but simply because you've got a lot of cases. So one direction of causality. Is that just having cases means you have to do a lot of tests but there's some causality in the other direction too Uh, doing a lot of tests reads out a lot of cases you might not otherwise have known about because these are people who are asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms which means they're not really sick they don't feel ill they can keep working but they're contagious. So a second thing that I looked at. So first of all, I, I, I created a graph where the main purpose, I have to admit, was partly to show that the US, when you consider per capita testing, and the fact that we have a lot of cases, we haven't really done a very good job of testing our population. But the second thing was, does it really matter? And there you start looking at death rates. Huh. And because that of course is the, the, the main reason you're worried about controlling the pandemic is simply to minimize the number of deaths. And in, in, that, in, in that analysis, Uh, I I created another metric I called strategic testing, which is the total tests a country has done minus the tests that you do just because you have a lot of cases. And I assumed that was five tests per case. And when you take out the the necessary tests, the five tests per case, uh, and include only the tests you do over and above that, there's a fairly clear correlation uh, between countries that are doing a lot of strategic testing and a, low de- and a lower death rate. Um, sadly, um, some of the more populous countries are at the wrong end of that spectrum. Uh, countries like the US, Belgium, the UK, um, that, that are seeing very high case fatality rates I, and simply aren't doing that much testing beyond the minimum amount of testing that a country with that many cases needs to do. And, and I hope that you know, raises the alarm and, and gets people to understand that there is nothing more important here, excuse me for getting on my soapbox, but there, there's nothing more important here than, than investing in doing more testing. And frankly, uh, for, for all of the unemployed people in, in the Western world right now, uh, hiring many of them as contact tracers would put them to work and be extremely valuable for controlling the pandemic.
0: And uh, I, I can... And that was well, my I,
1: political statement
0: for that No, no, I, I subscribe 100%. And I think it's, it's more than political. I think it's a data-driven statement, because whatever the political comes after, but uh, politics come from the word policy, or <laughs> polis in Greek, and that is city, so I think it's, it's really important, yeah.
1: yeah. You know, I, I want to make one sort of political or social statement about this, is that there is so much data flying around that that people can, um, can focus on pretty much anything to support an argument that they're making. You know, you know. For example, there are people who are saying. Excuse me, there, there, there are people who who are who are saying that the um, uh, the that, that, that COVID isn't that serious. That that that, that uh, a very high percentage of the population has already been infected, and therefore the death rate isn't really that high. Uh, that's not a view i subscribe to but you know that's that's the reason we collect all this information is to try to understand how lethal COVID is because once we understand how lethal it is we can make intelligent decisions about how risky it is to open up uh, and and unfortunately this information you know tends to be cherry-picked, this, excuse me. This data tends to be cherry-picked. And people are selective about the, about the data that they use to make their points, and uh, they end up reaching wrong conclusions uh, as a result of it. So this is one of the risks of being as a in data as we are.
0: So I want to probably to wrap up because we passed already one hour. So one thing I would like to ask, precisely picking this last topic, and I think wrapping up with your book as well. So definitely the challenge we have, uh, and it's going to be increasing a bigger challenge is the way we use data. Um, mm-hmm. And data has become increasing a weapon for good and for bad. But one thing that for me should be, especially as someone that has been teaching on the leading universities in the world and as well being part of other leading is education, I think there's a, a responsibility we have as academics and as people that are actually more educated, but as well trying to be more scientific. It's definitely uh, on that, I'm probably more political as well. But I think, I think, is in the sense that we cannot just make a statement without doing our homework. At least that's what I try to do with my statements. But you can make statements, you are a CFO, you know how to live, do numbers, you've been actually having a trajectory that is, but I think right now we have politicians we have leaders and we even have a huge amount of things especially social networks people that spend hours and days and years researching things that are completely wrong Um, so what's your and I think it's not about liking or or not it's not even political statement it's not factual it's not scientific and I think that's a big problem as we get into artificial intelligence as we advance more society how we can cope with this because we cannot cope with continuously misinformation and this always happened history but right now like you said if I use the numbers wrong I can create an entire um well an entire kind of a parallel reality with different numbers or fake numbers and this yeah. is happening unfortunately it's happening with with a lot of stuff so what what's your kind of advice on that because it's something that for me makes me as it makes me create a lot of nightmares and as well as something that I, I, I concern for my children and for the future of our generations
1: I I, you know it it concerns me deeply as well. I'm I'm not sure what to what to say about it, except earlier in in our conversation, I I stressed the importance of understanding statistics better. And by and by understand by statistics, I don't mean that you know what an R squared is or what a you know an exponential smoothing, weighted moving averages. That that's 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 not what I mean by statistical reasoning. What I mean is draw is how pe- is how you draw inferences from the numbers, uh, and in particular, the notion that correlation and causation are two different concepts. I mean, what you're describing is the, the failure of somebody to draw a distinction between correlation and causation. When you have this much data around, you can can find two variables that are highly correlated with each other, and they're correlated just by accident because there are so many numbers that it's just not that hard to find. Um, You know, you can can flip a coin 10,000 times and somewhere in there, there will be a sequence of 10 times where you threw heads consecutively, or 10 times where you threw tails consecutively. It it, it happens. And 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 people need to be more aggressive and more critical, especially people who understand this point that I just made. Uh, they need to be more aggressive and more critical about faulty inferences and about people using data I, you know it's not fake data it's probably valid data but it's being used in fake ways uh, and 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 more people who understand these issues need to raise their hands and say that's that's a fake that's 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 not clear logic and eventually you know hopefully i this whole issue of fake news and fake data—it's—it's it's not going away anytime soon. But people need to speak up when they see the difference, and when they see there's a problem.
0: So no, speak. I think it's a, I, I subscribe. I don't know if you want to say it because I I subscribe, and I think it's a good way to wrap up. Uh, and I think we have a responsibility of all of us because otherwise we create a very dystopic world where we question everything and we. And as well, not everyone, let's say, someone that is a teacher in a, in a or a researcher or a scientist should have an opinion bigger than someone that just saw a YouTube channel. <laughs> That's another thing we have to, to change more in our society. But well, I think that was a bigger topic to go. So um, I don't know if there's any uh, final statement that you want to talk about the book or about some of the research you're doing or even about your startup, uh, just for our audience. We're wrapping up right now. You know, one other
1: question. Thank you. First of all, Thank you very much for having me. I've I've enjoyed this, and and, and I really appreciate it. Um, As as I look back on on my career, and I've I've had an IPO, and I've had other successes, but probably as I look back, the three startups that I will have been most proud of having been involved with are medical software startups. Um, One I was involved with a couple of years ago I'm using uh, machine learning to to, uh, predict medical outcomes. Uh, 25 years ago, I was with a company called BioCAD that was one of the first um, to use use computer simulation to predict chemical reactions. And then this one, um, uh, Scriptulate, um, which is uh, focused on Collecting information in a meaningful way for doctors, and it's information that's available. It's just very hard for a doctor to collect it in a busy workplace. Uh, so, in that sense, it's a simple solution. But, but those may be the three companies, even though they aren't necessarily the ones that that made me financially successful. Um, I, I hope Scripture be different about that, but. Um, they're, they're the ones that, that I think uh, I'll be most proudest of, of having been uh, associated with. And, and I'd like to believe that there are areas where somebody who is, um, who is competent at, at, at explaining fairly complex processes plays a critical role in the company. And I think that's going to be true more and more for finance professionals going forward.
0: Well, that is, uh, and I I'm, I subscribe and I couldn't agree more. So I think we, we're we going to probably put all the links to your book, to your uh, different and for this startup as well in the interview uh, that is going to be distributed throughout channels. I appreciate Random for your time and for these great insights. I, I probably would just get the last, uh, I want your opinion, the last one. So you mentioned that you are proud about these three companies, but... Uh, from the experience with bringing a company from zero to a billion or to half a billion um what would be the, the biggest as well uh, takeaway for for our audience because of course success is about numbers as well but it's about meaningful numbers and i think i would like to have just one last remark on that
1: yeah I, you know i would say it, it 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 seems impressive but you know i have to say it, it, it didn't feel that different in the middle of it, except, except I was busier and, 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 and I suppose under more pressure. Um, you know, the, the, the one thing I would say about a company that grows that fast is that every person matters. Um, that companies cannot do that unless they add critical and competent people and take advantage of their skills and that's true across all of the functions other than that uh, you know as i as i look back i'm, I'm not sure that the super high growth companies uh, that i've worked for were that different than the companies that didn't turn out that way. And that's something people should remember it is, and, and, and venture capitalists will say this all the time, is that, is that they're, they are more likely, many of them claim, I don't know if it's true, they're more likely to invest in an entrepreneur who's had his share of failures than someone who's had nothing but success.
0: That's a great way to remark uh, this. So thank you so much, Randall. It's been a pleasure and an honor as well. And there's a lot of um, quotes I took from the from the interview and some of the things that our editorial team did. So we'll promote this and it'll be uh, all over the internet. Thank you so much, Randall.
1: Thank you. Dennis. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. It's a privilege for me to.